This morning, I have the pleasure of transitioning us from a preaching series in the book of 1 Corinthians to a, a summer series in the Psalms. Specifically, we're going to be looking at Psalms 18 through 25. Now, this is actually something we do every summer. We preach through the Psalms. So, so if you want to learn about Psalms 1 through 17, go, back, go find our website and you can access those old messages. Now, let me share a couple reasons we get into the Psalms every summer. First, men and women have been created to experience and express a variety of different emotions. And so there are Psalms expressing joy, Psalms expressing sadness, Psalms expressing despair, Psalms expressing repentance, Psalms expressing confusion, longing for answers, Psalms seeking wisdom and guidance as we are making decisions. they are Psalms expressing anger, longing for God to bring his justice. So some of you need to know it is okay to express sadness or anger. Others of you, you need to learn how to express joy and praise and thanksgiving. And some of you need to learn how to acknowledge sin, to confess and repent to God. The Psalms equip us to do all of that. Second, second we, not, we not only learn more about experiencing and expressing emotion, we learn more about Jesus and his kingdom. So, so at least 73 of the 150 Psalms are attributed to King David. So the Psalms teach us about who David was as king, how he ruled and reigned, and what it meant to follow him. But, but because Jesus taught in the Gospel of Luke, everything, everything written in the Law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled, David's rule and reign as king the kingdom he ruled, it's pointing to something far greater. The Psalms help us understand who Christ is as king and what it means to live as part of his kingdom. So when the king and his people speak in the Psalms, it is not just God's people in the past who are speaking. Jesus is the perfect king who speaks the Psalms. The theme of Christ as king, the theme of what it means to be part of his kingdom. We're going to encounter that over and over again as we read the Psalms this summer. So Psalm 18, the, the one we're examining this, this morning, is a psalm that is directly attributed to King David. And the words to this psalm are also found with some minor variations in the book of 2 Samuel. Okay, this book details many events in the life of King David, how he became king, how he served God's kingdom as a great warrior, how he struggled with and indulged in sin, and how he ruled God's people with wisdom and discernment. This psalm, Psalm 18, comes after all that, just prior to the description of David's last words. So its placement is making this point that King David, he didn't just do things. He didn't just participate in life and culture. He created and he contributed things like poetry and music. And 
He was very intentional about reflecting on the moments and situations in his life. The fact that this psalm is chosen from the 73 that are known to be written by him. It's like a snapshot that represents a particular moment in time. It is a, it's a representation for God's people of the time that King David lived and ruled. So, so how does the psalmist reflect on David's time as king? What can we learn from those reflections to form and shape how we are to live under God's perfect king? So that one, of the, one of the shows we've recently been watching at the Gardner House is Alone. Now, this is a History Channel production where they drop 10 individuals on Vancouver Island, British Columbia. And there's no camera crews, no ability to coordinate with other participants, and very few items to survive to see who's going to be the last person standing. If you haven't seen the show, spoiler alert, uh, I'm giving away something about one of the nine individuals that lose in season one. So one of, one of the most interesting men in that season is a guy from a small town in northeast Iowa named Lucas. Early on, with his, with his limited tools, the, the few things he's been given, he begins to build a cabin. Uh, he successfully makes a boat to travel beyond shore. He constructs a yurt. He creates a, a primitive stringed instrument to make music. It seems the other men are, are trying to survive while Lucas is constructing a civilization where he can thrive. As he nears his decision to tap out, this is his reflection on his times. Yesterday I broke down and I wailed in the forest again. Most of the time I'm concerned about my prestige or position in the world or getting ahead or being somebody. And it's because I wasn't really great at sports. I wasn't a great artist or a great musician or great at anything else. A lot of this, I think, is just accepting who I am at 32. It's like a pre-midlife crisis. I wish I was stronger. As Lucas reflects, the cameras show all he has built, demonstrating how he is more clever, more creative, and he has achieved far more in comparison to the others. It seems his self-reflection is a bit inaccurate. His heart is drawn to compare himself to others or to prove himself against his past failures. Those tend to define him, and he longs to achieve prestige or position in the world. He seems to be missing the bigger picture. So what is David's heart drawn to in Psalm 18? What is the tone and the message of this snapshot that's chosen for placement in 2 Samuel? What can we learn from those reflections to form and shape how we are to live life under God's perfect king? If you have not yet done so, I invite you to open your Bible or a Bible app to Psalm 18. We don't put the various words to the passages uh, that we will examine this morning. We want, you, we want you to be in the word, seeing God's word for yourself. So I invite you to do that at this point. For first impressions, let's, let's, let's glance at the introduction and conclusion for a couple answers. In verses two and three, we read, 
The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock where I seek refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I was saved from my enemies. The psalmist here can't help expressing awe and wonder about who God is. This is an act of praise, and it is the tone and the content communicated throughout this passage. The heart and mind of the psalmist, rather than focus on specific situations or comparing self to others, is drawn to express his heart about a much bigger picture. Here's a part of the conclusion in verses 46 and 47. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. The God of my salvation is exalted. God, he grants me vengeance and subdues people under me. More expressions of praise. The psalmist knows God is firm. He is consistent and stable, steadfast and strong. He is not soft nor unreliable, weak nor wavering, fickle nor false. A psalm of praise for God has been chosen as this snapshot for how God's people reflect on what it is like to live under the rule and reign of God's king. So as we reflect on those times, we also will be people who produce praise. And so our big idea this morning is a right reflection of the times produces praise. As we explore this psalm, how the psalmist reflects, we'll find praise is expressed with two key themes in mind. Two foundational characteristics of how God acts and how he relates to his people. Deliverance and dependability. So let's start with deliverance. After using the language in the introduction, my deliverer and my rock where I seek refuge and the horn of my salvation, in verses 4 through 19, David describes an an occurrence of distress, how he pleads to the Lord in that distress, and how he experiences deliverance. In verses 7 through 12, David uses this vivid language of God rescuing his king from danger and potential defeat. I I wish we had more time. It is a great passage as you consider how God relates to his people in distress. There is no force on earth or in the heavens that can oppose him. There is no question about his power and might. God goes great lengths to deliver his king and his people using a variety of resources available to him. And we find that he works through darkness to deliver. As the psalmist concludes that section, he says this in verses 16 through 18. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He pulled me out of deep water. He rescued me from my powerful enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. The the psalmist is saying God does not abandon his people. God does not leave his people alone in the midst of distress, even when it seems like we have been defeated. When we are in deep water, he is at work. 
When we perceive that there's these earthly enemies that will be too strong for us, he is our support. In moments of deep distress, God delivers and he is victorious. And in verse 19, the psalmist says this of God, he brought me out to a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. In the book, Gentle and Lowly, author Dane Ortland, he references Puritan thinker, a Puritan thinker named Thomas Goodwin to demonstrate as we consider how God rescues us, in particular, how God rescues us through Christ and in Christ, we often picture something much different than God's delight. Goodwin is saying that this high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numbed sufferers. Such embrace is precisely what he loves to do. He cannot bear to hold back. We naturally think of Jesus touching us the way a little boy reaches out to touch a slug for the first time, face screwed up, cautiously extending an arm, giving a yelp of disgust upon contact and instantly withdrawing. We picture the risen Christ approaching us with a severe and sour disposition. See, the God, the God who delivers you is not rescuing you because he is fed up and lost his patience with how messy you are. The God who delivers you is not repulsed by how dirty and defiled you have become, how, how you can't figure it out on your own. The God who delivers you is not bound to orders to do something that he has no desire to do. God rescues you because he delights in you. As we look back at David's life, because of the way he describes this dramatic deliverance, many think the context for this passage must be some sensational scenario. And so from the subtitle that prefaces this psalm, we know that it was written after David escaped Saul and assumed the throne, but, but it's less clear the specific situation. So here's, here's Minister Robert Godfrey in his book, Learning to Love the Psalms. But, but when in David's life did this happen? As we scan the Old Testament history, we can find no such episode. The explanation is, of course, that David is speaking poetically here. He records not what he saw with his physical eyes, so it's not a, not a specific scenario, but what his eyes of faith saw happen. Although this awesome power of God usually remains hidden from you, from view, it is absolutely real. And it is exercised for the well-being of his people. God is always working powerfully and passionately for his people, even when we do not see it. So even if the psalmist has in mind a, a specific situation, maybe a situation of military victory, based on the language that David uses in verse 15, such a situation would be pointing to a much greater victory of rescue and redemption. Listen. The depths of the sea became visible. The foundations of the world were exposed. At your rebuke, Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. So, so the psalmist is reflecting on an act of God delivering his people from slavery that is found in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. 
as the Egyptians had God's people cornered in a narrow place at the border of the Red Sea, God divided the waters. The depths of the sea became visible. Dry land was in view. The foundations of the world were exposed, and it provided a way for the Israelites to escape, bringing them out to a spacious place. As the psalmist reflects on the times, he, he is expressing that a right reflection is rooting, rooted in understanding not only how God has worked today, but also how God has worked in times past. And so part of the annual rhythm of the Israelites was to celebrate the Passover, something King David would have done. And more, more than it being a moment acknowledging the deliverance of God's people hundreds of years ago, they were acknowledging this is a part of our story too. It's something that, that is core to who we are as God's people. So we, as a church, First City Church, we celebrated our five-year anniversary this past year. And by God's grace at that time, many of you weren't part of the group that planted First City Church. And that's not because you aren't amazing people and we didn't want you there, okay? But because God in his goodness has brought many new faces and personalities over the years, and so when we observed that five-year anniversary, it wasn't only the story of individuals who were physically present the day we launched our first gathering. It's also the story of those of you that have become part of this church since. Because you are part of this people, the story of the people who are present the day of launch, that's your story too. I've recently been reading a book by author and professor Jeffrey Bilrow called Reading the Times. And to encourage, to encourage readers to rightly reflect on the times, he uses an expression from Henry David Thoreau, who is a, a famous 19th century naturalist, um, philosopher, and author. And the, and the expression is, read not the times, read the eternities. Okay, this quote is emphasizing to reflect, we need to be drawn to, to the bigger picture of God's purposes and plans. We tend to form ourselves to overemphasize recent situations and events and circumstances. And here's what, here's what I mean. Earlier during our, 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 our worship, we said that earthly things, earthly situations and circumstances, earthly people, they do not deliver us. And earthly situations and circumstances of victory and deliverance. The cancer being in remission. A broken relationship that is restored. People rallying around you, coming to your rescue. An event where my son was able to participate in catching a shark in a salt waterway. I'm a proud dad. All of those earthly situations do not validate or prove God delivers and rescues his people, but rather they, they serve as reminders of that truth. In the event that we have a string of positive events that establishes such a faith, it will tend to be shallow and prone to crack and crumble and be crushed in the midst of difficulty and distress. And in looking to positive circumstances rather than the eternities, rather than God's purposes and plans, on the other hand, 
in the absence of positive events, as we face negative circumstances, we will be prone to adopt and embrace distorted views about God and self. So, when painful moments of being neglected or abused or misused confront us, we view ourselves as being dirty and ugly. In a sense, we are scum and we need to hide. We believe we have not been delivered from our shame. When someone abandons or withdraws or betrays us, such a moment, rather than delight, communicates that you're not good enough. You're not worth delighting in. And so we believe we have not been delivered from our suffering. When a, when a specific sin, one that has the power to make us feel guilty and exposed and defiled, one we were hoping that we could take to the grave to keep in the dark, is now known by others. We believe we have not been delivered from the power of sin and the effects of sin. And when we encounter disaster because of a literal storm like yesterday or because of a, a figurative storm in our lives, we feel abandoned. And we believe God does not deliver from difficulty. Rightly reflecting on the times, reading the eternities means events that happened years ago or decades ago or centuries ago or thousands of years ago rather than simply happening to people back then form you. They form you today. That story is foundational to your story. Events that happened in the past define who you are today. They provide meaning Romans 6, 9 through 11 says, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too, you too, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So while King, while King David experienced God's deliverance from earthly enemies. King Jesus delivered us from so much more. From sin and death and shame and guilt and sorrow. So you are not messy or dirty. You are clean and you are whole. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you are not abandoned and alone. He has delivered you from ultimate danger and distress and defeat to be with him. And so as a Christian, because you know he has worked in the past to deliver you, because you know he has made you clean, and because you know this was not something you deserved, you know he delights in you. God has gone great lengths to draw you out of deep waters that you might be rescued, even sacrifice his own son. This is God's heart towards you. So a, a right reflection of our times first produces praise for deliverance. Second, it leads us to praise God for de dependability. After the psalmist describes God in the introduction as a rock, dependable, 
as a, as a fortress, as a stronghold. In verses 20 through 24, he says some things that, that may come across as though he is boasting about himself. For the sake of time, I'll only share verse 20. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. He repaid me according to the cleanness of my hands. Now, we know David was not completely righteous or blameless or, or clean. He had flaws and failures. As we mentioned earlier, David, David here is speaking poetically, which means making a reflection of his times. As he does this poetically, he is able to view himself blameless and clean and righteous in a relative way or an incomplete sense in comparison to, to the wicked kings and wicked people. In expressing the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, the psalmist is not saying God rescues people based on what they do. He's not proclaiming something contrary to the gospel that we are saved by works, right? In the prior verse that we looked at, verse 19, the psalmist said, the Lord rescued me because he delighted in me. In verse 20, the psalmist is saying, the Lord rewarded me or the Lord blessed me, not rescued me in connection with my actions and behavior. That, that is saying something much different, okay? So, so praising God for deliverance, what we looked at first, is praising, praising who God is in regards to what he does for his people. Praising God for dependability is, is praising God in regards to what, what he does through, through his people, not for his people, but through his people. Psalm 1 teaches someone who delights in the Lord's instruction, who meditates on it day and night, is like a tree planted beside flowing streams. It serves as a solid foundation for how we live. There is a blessing God's people experience when they read and walk and meditate and delight in his word. When that is not happening, we believe things that are not true. We act in ways that are not building God's kingdom. We experience consequences of not trusting God's word. It is not that when we earn, it's not that we earn God's favor when God's word serves as the foundation of our lives. But God works through his word. He blesses through his word. He is dependable to do so. So in verse 32 of Psalm 18, David declares, God clothes me with strength and makes my way perfect. This means God not only provides a foundation for us to build our lives upon, he, he provides the fuel. He gives us strength, empowering us to walk in righteousness. David is rejecting a view of our times that says, let go and let God, that, that, that we can do whatever we want, that our actions do not matter. Actions, your actions do matter because God is dependable. There is, there's a strengthening of you and I that happens as we live according to his word and trust in his presence and his power. So, so a lesson for us here as we reflect on our time as Christians rather than focus on deficiencies and defeats, 
Because we believe that God is dependable to work through his word and gives power for transformation, we are able to look back and we're able to celebrate how we have grown walking in righteousness and living according to the word and delighting in the word. We are able to rejoice at how we have matured in holiness, not telling a lie that we would have told five years ago. Saying no to temptations to escape to a social media feed or to look to a painkiller or a porn page or a piece of pie for comfort when experiencing pain and disappointment. We rejoice at how we are saying yes to taking time to read God's word or spending time praying for a friend. Because God is dependable, It is right to recognize and affirm and celebrate how the Holy Spirit is growing you as a disciple to no longer live for self, to live for the glory of Christ. But unlike King David, we do not declare ourselves to be righteous in an incomplete manner. Apart from Christ, at best that's true. We declare our righteousness in comparison to others. But because of Christ, the only king that can truly declare verse 21. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. Because we have been given his righteousness, we do not declare that we are clean in an incomplete way, but an absolute way. Because God is dependable, because Christ is perfectly holy, we are able to praise him for how he has made us completely clean and absolutely righteous. Now, because God is dependable, because God is firm, it provides confidence for us as God's people when we encounter challenging and difficult circumstances. Listen to verses 33 through 36. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and sets me securely on the heights. He trains my hands for war. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand upholds me and your humility exalts me. You make a spacious place beneath me for my steps and my ankles do not give way. The psalmist describes encountering challenging enemies. Our bodies begin to break down. We shake. We are weak as though we cannot stand. Our ankles struggle to bear our weight. The psalmist understands God's people do not experience an absence of suffering. For David, his son betrayed him, leading others to renounce him as king. He had a a baby die because of his sin. He was ridiculed and rejected. He was exposed and embarrassed. Yet God is dependable. He upholds us. Our ankles do not give way. Some of you need to hear this. When you encounter difficult news, the type of news that crushes your heart and makes it difficult to get out of bed in the morning, to do your daily tasks, God is dependable. When your your sin is exposed, 
making you feel shameful and dirty and unclean before others. God is dependable. When others betray or withdraw from you, making you feel alone as though you are the common denominator, the problem, it's your fault. God is dependable. And when your enemy attacks in the form of accusations from others or in the form of accusations from self, when you agree, I'm a failure, I'm not not good enough to be part of this group, others don't need me, I'm better off on my own, God is dependable to do battle for his people. As we understand God is dependable, it provides the foundation for us to stand firm and to take risk. Praise and awe are displayed in action. And so when we encounter enemies that threaten hurt and harm, we are courageous. Here is the psalmist in verses 37 through 42. I pursue my enemies and overtake them. I do not turn back until they are wiped out. I crush them and they cannot get up. They fall beneath my feet. You have clothed me with strength for battle. You subdue my adversaries beneath me. You have made my enemies retreat before me. I annihilate those who hate me. They cry for help, but there is no one to save them. They cry to the Lord, but he does not answer them. I pulverize them like dust before the wind. I trample them like mud in the streets. The psalmist understands that God is firm and faithful. So he or she is free to run into danger rather than away from danger. Knowing God is dependable leads his people to enter the mess and challenge of crisis and catastrophe rather than remain being safe and secure. As we rightly reflect on the times, as we read the eternities, as we understand God's purposes and plans, we praise God for his dependability and it transforms the way we live. Because we have much more in view than this present moment. We have in view our life in Christ. To to that end, here's the final two verses of Psalm 18. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations, Lord. I, I will sing praises about your name. He gives great victories to his king. He shows loyalty to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. See, this, the psalmist recognizes that this, this king appointed by God is one who delivers the nations, not just the nation of Israel. King David did this in an incomplete way. But, but looking forward, King Jesus, he has done it in a perfect the two themes or characteristics of God come together. God delivers his people. He delivers the nations. He gives great victories to David and his descendants. And through Christ, he did it. He was dependable to provide this ultimate victory. And this leads to his people singing the praises of this king 
singing the praises of Christ. May we be that type of people. Let's pray.